I'm here to announce that I am seeking the nomination to become the NDP candidate for Fort Rouge in the provincial election this year. Heyo, Andre, so what do you know about provincial politics in Manitoba? I'll admit I don't know as much as I should. Whenever I hear about issues at the provincial level, I tend to hear about Ontario, Quebec, and Alberta. They're the ones that dominate national news headlines. There are some issues in Manitoba that deserve serious scrutiny, and I think a lot of that gets overlooked just because, I don't know, like the Prairie Provinces get very short shrift. So one of the things that's happening in Manitoba this spring, of course, is they're having a provincial election. And somebody who has entered to run for the governing NDP party is making a lot of headlines. And that's Indigenous activist, journalist, and rapper, Wab Canoe. Wab Canoe is like a jack of all trades. The dude does everything. I mean, the, the dude raps, he writes, he's a community leader. On top of that, he's also on the board for the Canadian Journalist for Free Expression. Uh, alongside you are me. also a part of. I'm also a part of that too. Well, we want to ask Wab Canoe today about his decision to jump into provincial politics as so many people in the NDP are actually jumping away Ouch. from that fairly unpopular, if you believe the polls, party right now. There's been a lot of controversy around Manitoba's NDP and taxes. Mm-hmm. So Wab Canoe is jumping on to a party right now that's facing some serious controversy. And I think we should talk to him about that. I think it would be great also to get his perspective on child welfare, not just in Manitoba, but there are similar problems in other provinces. And I think he would have a really good perspective on that. Let's do this, man. I'm Andre Demise. I'm Desmond Cole. And this is Canada Land Commons. Today's episode of Canada Land Commons is brought to you by WarbyParker.com. So for all you lucky listeners of Canada Land Commons out there, Warby Parker is currently offering a free five-day home try-on to check out their glasses. That's five pairs. You've got five days to check it out 100% free. And listen, if you know me, you know that I'm a person who likes to step out fresh. Oh my And no, this is true. This is true. Part of stepping out fresh means your eyewear has got to be on point. I see a lot of y'all people walking around out there with specs that look like they belong to your mom or dad or something. If you go to warbyparker.com, you will find a look that actually suits you and not the big old chunky glasses, not the cheap looking tinny half frames. I mean, actual good looking glasses. Now, people can't see you, Andre, thankfully, but you wear glasses. I do wear glasses. And if you don't have insurance, glasses can run a whole hell of a lot of money. We're talking, you know, $700, $750. Even if you do have coverage, that might only get you, you know, maybe about $250 back. So getting glasses is a pain. It's a hassle. It's expensive. And half of the time when you actually wear the glasses out for a couple of weeks, you tend to not like it. Warby Parker's glasses are affordable. They include anti-reflective and anti-glare coating. Which is a godsend for those of us who drive at nighttime. And there's no additional cost for those features. To get your home try-on today, go to warbyparkertrial.com forward slash commons. That's W-A-R-B-Y parkertrial.com forward slash commons. So we've had some amazing guests in the last few weeks, but someone that we've really wanted to chop it up with for a while is Wab Canoe. He is a broadcaster, he's an author, he's a rapper, and uh, it just so happens that we get to talk to him now because he is running for office in the riding of Fort Rouge in Winnipeg, Manitoba for the NDP provincially. Why jump into provincial politics now? You know, the quick answer is I think it would be a real shame if we got rid of Harper at the federal level. And then we brought in uh, somebody who uh, wants to 
take our province in a similar direction. So I figured I've got a little bit of reputation that I can cash in and maybe uh, use to try and uh, influence a seat and maybe influence some of the conversations around uh, this election. So I figured, you know, I, I owe it because of what I believe in, progressive values and social justice to try and get involved and see if I can uh, change things around. Because on the personal level, I've got two young kids here in Winnipeg. You know, I don't want to uproot them or change anything in their immediate surroundings because they're happy and doing well in school. So I figure, you know, if I am going to get involved in the political arena, then it it should be here so I can be um, spending as much time with them as possible during their formative years and also uh, see if I can play a part in trying to keep our province on what I consider to be a uh, positive course. Now, you're only 33 years old, but... 34 you're, you're, now. I'm oh, sorry. Way older. Happy birthday. So happy completely happy different, uh, 34th. But in story. that time, you've made an impact in a lot of different ways in this country. You've been vice president of a university program. Uh, you've been a Associate journalist. vice president, yeah. Associate by, uh, yeah. vice president, excuse me. I remember very clearly a, an interview that you did in 2013 where you confronted Donald Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of Defense of the United States, about Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Canada Reads work that you've done. You know, you've been able to play a really prominent role as a journalist, as an activist. What can you do in politics that you haven't been able to do in your previous roles? One of the big questions I've always had in my life is probably a question that a lot of people have, and that is whether you can really change a system. Like, can you really get involved in something and change it for the better? Or will you always just be co-opted or always just be kind of like a token voice? As I've gone through my career, I've had a few experiences that have led me to believe that I can, that anyone can get involved and change systems for the better. So, for instance, some of this stuff is maybe more behind the scenes than the examples you gave. But at the CBC, as an example, in 2008, leading up to the uh, apology that Prime Minister Harper gave to the survivors of residential schools, there was an internal controversy at the CBC about the language that should be used. And initially, the decision maker said, don't use survivor because that's technically inaccurate and, you know, whatever, that's just people being uh, folksy. The, the correct term is former student. And so I... Um, you know, helped to change that policy and persuaded them that, no, that's accurate. Because you look at what happened in the schools. The guy that my father shared a bunk with in St. Mary's Residential School, Louis, he died. So therefore, my father what? Well, he survived. So therefore, residential school survivor is technically uh, accurate. And, um, you know, it took a lot of conversations and sort of a lot of internal politicking. But eventually, a few days before the apology came down, they changed that policy and said that every journalist in the CBC um, should use the term residential school survivor. And that's influenced the coverage of the apology in 2008, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission from 2010 to 2015, and all the coverage of related stories, whether it's the access to information requests or the independent adjudication process requests and the different stories of uh, nutritional experiments in residential schools. To me, that is a clear indication that by getting involved, by being a part of those conversations, I was able to shift things to the better. And not just for my community, though it, it was an important, I think, reflection of where my community is coming from. But I think that's also a victory for Canada, because it's a more accurate reflection of our history, of our collective past. And then I guess more recently at the University of Winnipeg, we were able to 
pass a policy to uh, mandate Indigenous content for all undergraduate programs at the university. Because of the consultations that we had on campus, we managed to do that in a way that still respects the autonomy of students and still respects academic freedom. But we're also able to, I think, I would argue, bring our that educational institution more in line with where this country is headed, which is a society where reconciliation with Indigenous nations is a societal priority. And as a result, that students should be able to engage in those conversations with more information. I guess that's a very long-winded way of saying I do believe that system change is possible. And the way that you change the direction of a ship is by being on board the ship, not by trying to influence things from the outside, though both of those roles are needed. You do need people from the outside to exert pressure and to you know, ask things to change. You had an amazing interview with George Trombolopoulos where you talked about Canadians having a hard time relating Indigenous issues to themselves and, and understanding why they should care. Do you feel that there's been a shift or there's been any change since then? Yeah, I think there's been quite a bit of a progression. That interview in particular was maybe around 2011, uh, early 2012. And um, in the interim, you've seen I Don't Know More catapult indigenous issues to the uh, forefront of national uh, collective consciousness. You've seen um, the um, internal controversies at the Assembly of First Nations become national news with uh, Sean Atlio resigning and then the election of Perry Bellegarde. And then uh, last year, really, the, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, the release of their final report and of their executive summary, to me, it was one of the highlights of last year's news media cycle uh, right up there with the federal election and because of the the prominent role that the trc played in a lot of conversations it really did i think influence the tenor of the uh the federal election and so even though you didn't see indigenous issues brought up in any of the televised or broadcast debates i think a ton of the conversations on social media around the different political parties running federally was about where they stood on Indigenous issues or at least how they planned to cultivate a better relationship. And I think that even like what you've seen after the election with the response that people had to the uh, swearing-in ceremony where there were, you know, Inuit throat singers and, you know, there's a young First Nations uh, man singing some powwow music and there were Métis jiggers. I think a lot of Canadians responded positively to that, that Justin Trudeau, Appointed a few uh, Indigenous people to uh, his cabinet, I think was also received very positively. So all that I take to be signs that the country, although there's still a a ton of challenges that remain, you know, particularly around the uh, unequal funding for First Nations education, health and social services on reserve, that uh, at least there's some interest and there's some political will to try and uh, address these things. This is the first election that I can remember, at least, where in conversations with my own family or within my peer circle, when we were talking about who we wanted to vote for or why we, you know, any party deserves our vote, Indigenous issues came up almost immediately. Yeah. So given that it's now on the map, how much further do you think the Liberals need to take this conversation? Well, realistically, I mean, what they've done so far has been a few symbolic gestures, which are good. But really, the rubber is going to meet the road when we see what they do in terms of uh, legislative change and in terms of spending priorities, right? So I guess the first policy thing that they've done is to announce the inquiry into missing and murdered women and uh, the fact that they're consulting with communities and families about what that should look like. I think that that's a positive step. But again, the inquiry process itself, I think it's going to be really important how that's designed because it has a potential to be a very kind of painful process for a lot of people. 
and it uh, needs to be designed in such a way that it respects the uh, well-being of uh, family members uh, who have lost uh, loved ones, while at the same time being able to ask the critical questions about how our society is failing Indigenous women in particular, but really all women who are threatened by gendered violence more broadly. And uh, it's got to balance those two uh, priorities. And then at the same time, like there was this uh, human rights tribunal ruling that child welfare services on reserve, the inequity in funding on them is discrimination. So the, the feds need to figure out how they're going to respond to that. There is a similar gap in funding for schools on reserve. It averages out to about $4,000 per student per year for schools on reserve compared to uh, provincial schools. So they got to uh, figure out how to respond to that. And I think that, you know, those issues are probably going to be like the yardsticks by which the federal government's measured in terms of its progress towards reconciliation with Indigenous people and Indigenous nations. But the other thing that I'd say with all that stuff in mind is that even if the government did all those things, particularly on the social services and education piece, we'd still as a country just be doing the bare minimum of what we should be doing. Right. Which is making sure that every kid in this country has an equal shot at life, you know, gets a comparable access to services. And then there's the whole other conversation around justice for indigenous people and for uh, land and resources and for um, some of the other challenges and conversations around resources and self-determination. I want to ask you specifically about child welfare in the province of Manitoba, because that is a huge issue and one that affects everyone in the province, obviously, but particularly Indigenous people. And just to frame that, there are about 11,000 children currently in Manitoba's child and family services system. 90% of them are Indigenous. Um, A First Nations chief in Manitoba recently called the child welfare system in that province a child apprehension machine. Mm -hmm. If you're able to be successful in the election in, uh, in April, what's your vision for the child welfare system in Manitoba specifically? Well, I think that we need a uh, a child welfare system that does what it can to keep Indigenous kids in Indigenous families or Indigenous communities when that's possible. But we also need to balance that with the concern for child safety. We can't justify keeping kids in abusive or neglectful situations. But at the same time, like I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission the calls to action that they laid out around the child welfare system, I think, are a very strong roadmap. And so what they contemplate are basically steps like making sure that social workers have an awareness of the historic context in which they're operating, which is a context in which, you know, governments in the past have used child removal from families for political purposes, right? Like during the residential school era, Indigenous kids were removed from families basically to facilitate the expropriation of Indigenous lands and resources. And so there needs to be an awareness of that harmful history so that people can be aware of how Their actions operate within a specific historic context of colonialism, but also that people who are on the front lines working with families might be aware of where some of the dysfunctions that they're witnessing were picked up. In my family, for instance, my late father and, you know, some other relatives in my family, they brought home anger and dysfunction from the residential schools with them. And that influenced the way that they raised us. And so my generation, you know, now that I'm a dad, I'm doing a lot of work focused on, you know, how do I be a 
compassionate, supportive father. And it's not always easy because, you know, some of my role models on how an adult should relate to a child were formed uh, by people who grew up in a residential school. And their whole idea of how an adult should relate to a child was uh, influenced by them being taken care of by people who didn't care for them and in some cases actively hated them. And so how do you influence a child welfare system that may not be aware of the effects of that kind of intergenerational trauma. That sounds like a huge task. Well, I think it begins with education of the people who are involved in the system, and a lot of that work has already begun. I think that Indigenous people, and in particular Indigenous women, need to be really involved in the uh, not just the frontline delivery of child welfare and social services, but also in the governance of how those programs are designed. And that's something that I've started to see as well. When I look at what's happening in Manitoba, you know, it still isn't a crisis state in terms of the amount of indigenous kids that are, you know, caught up in the system. And then that has all sorts of crazy consequences down the line. For instance, there's a huge overrepresentation of kids who are in the child welfare system who go on to be caught up in the justice system. And then there's underrepresentation of kids from the child welfare system going on to graduate and pursue post secondary. So those result in real challenges. But some communities in Manitoba have started to take different approaches. So rather than removing children from homes when there's evidence of, you know, perhaps abuse or neglect, some First Nations have started to remove the parents from homes. That means that a new caretaker, somebody to live with and care for the kids, comes into the home. And uh, that way the kids still have some consistency around being able to stay in their home environment, be able to go to the same school. And then Mm -hmm. they just get some help with them in sort of, I guess, a culturally safe, community safe kind of uh, modus operandi. There was another example, I think, here in the urban center here in Winnipeg, where uh, one of the um, social services agencies brought in uh, a group of Maori experts from New Zealand. And they spoke about how they're able to use like an extended family model of care. So, for instance, if there is a young parent that is um, struggling with caring for their children, rather than trying to apprehend the child, the uh, social worker or the social services agency reaches out to that person's extended family, to the grandparents, to the aunts, to the uncles, to the cousins, and tries to build a uh, child care plan that, I guess, uses the extended family as a support structure for the parent. Because it may not be that the parent has anything wrong with them in terms of being dysfunctional. It may just be that they're overwhelmed with the challenges of perhaps poverty or perhaps of, uh, you know, the socioeconomic situation in which they find themselves. And what I like about that approach is that that's consistent with the traditional indigenous cultural approach. So all that to say that I think that there have been some progressive steps taken here in Manitoba under the NDP government over the past year and a half in particular to try and make address the disproportionate representation of Indigenous people. And I think that the way that we get to a a better situation is to continue down that progressive path and to continue being more inclusive of Indigenous voices and community voices, not just in the delivery, but also the design and the the governance of those uh, systems. In other areas of Canada where people of color have a higher representation than they would, let's say, in Manitoba. You see a lot of the same issues. In Toronto, black children are 41% of children in children's aid care. Right. Do you see there being any way that groups across Canada can partner up with Indigenous communities to lend a larger voice to issues of marginalization? Is there some way that we can create a larger collective 
to speak to some of these issues? Yeah, I think so. There are important differences, you know, especially in terms of the history. You know, the African-Canadian experience is different than the Indigenous experience, especially historically. But at the same time, I think that some of the solutions and some of the ideas that may help people from these communities are similar. Like I think, for instance, that extended kinship approach of bringing in the extended family to help care for a child. Like while that is consistent with Indigenous cultural values, I think that that's probably something that, you know, might work for, um, you know, people from the African-Canadian community, from people from other cultural communities. If it is a good policy or if it is a good approach, rather, that helps kids then why not use it in other settings? Because really what you're talking about is trying to address the challenges that a child faces in their immediate survival needs while also trying to preserve their situation within a specific family, a specific culture, a specific community so that they can help to answer the bigger questions in life, right? Like the questions around identity, the questions around who am I, you know, where did I come from, who are my people, who are my relatives, and things like that. When a young person can't answer those questions, that opens the door to a lot of the other challenges that sometimes come later on, whether that's issues with addiction or, you know, issues with personal dysfunction. And so I think that, you know, there is potential for collaboration. I would like to see that conversation happen, especially, um, you know, as you say, in Ontario, I think there's a lot of potential. Because in the work that I've um, done in the education sector, for instance, in southern Ontario, in the GTA, you know, I do see a lot of the parallels between people from the black community, between the situation for indigenous people, between uh, the situation that people from other cultural communities face. And um, I think that if something works for a young person, then we ought to be able to share those successes and hopefully uh, use them to benefit everybody. And then just as an aside, you know, I think it would be kind of cool, really, if an indigenized approach does become one of the best practices that we use in this country. It would just be fitting. You speak very openly and passionately about the role of colonialism and the way that Canadian society is shaped and how it helps to marginalize certain groups. Do you think you'll be able to do that in provincial politics the way that you've been doing that now? Well, yeah, I think um, I want to run a campaign to, you know, represent the people of Fort Rouge, which is a very cool neighborhood, very cool part of Winnipeg, you know, very, very diverse in every sense of that word, you know, like people of all ages, people of all... um, levels of uh, socioeconomic standing, people from many different communities. And I want to speak to their reality. And I think that the only way I'll be able to do that is if I'm authentic. I wouldn't enter this game if I felt that I had to censor myself or change the way that I speak about these issues. I hear you saying that, but what I've observed in our politics in Canada is that political parties, especially as institutions, do not like talking about racism. Mm -hmm. Do you think that your own party is going to be as comfortable with you saying some of these things as you're comfortable saying it yourself? I don't think anyone's comfortable hearing about, you know, a conversation like racism or something like that. But I would say that people have been open to it. And I'll give you a specific example. In this province, one of the, I think, really good legacies of the NDP government is that they established this cancer drug program in Manitoba where every person is eligible for the coverage of the cancer drugs they need when they're sick, except for First Nations people. And I have a very personal experience with this because in 2012, my father was uh, diagnosed with a terminal cancer that he eventually uh, passed away from. 
And uh, his oncologist recommended as a, the first choice treatment a specific drug that he should have been eligible for under that provincial drug program. But because he's a First Nations man, even though he was in Winnipeg, he was ineligible for that program because as a First Nations man, he was covered by uh, the federal drug insurance program. And that program didn't cover that specific drug. So there's a very clear example of systemic racism. And it's not that anyone set out to like, hey, let's design a, a racist program to exclude First Nations people. It's just that as these things get designed, sometimes all of the ramifications are not carefully considered. And so I've taken that up with um, leadership in the party. And I've said, listen, like this is inequity, plain and simple. And, you know, they agree with me on that. And I said, if I'm lucky enough to, one, get the nomination and then eventually get elected in Fort Rouge, you know, this is one of the things that I would want to work to address. And uh, the response has been absolutely. McLean's came out about a year ago with an article calling Winnipeg the most racist place in Canada. Right. Do you feel that there's been progress or change in that area since then? Yeah. And well, I think that the McLean's article was misunderstood a little bit. Like what they were really saying is that Canada has a racism problem and that it's perhaps most acute in Winnipeg, as the argument went, people might say, oh, no, it's not Winnipeg, it's Thunder Bay or, you know, whatever. But is that really a, a great conversation to win, you know, an argument to win? <laughs> <laughs> so the reality is like... We're number one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the reality of the situation is like, you look at that McLean's article, to me, the most powerful thing was they had this little graphic sidebar in which they compared the socioeconomic gaps faced by Indigenous people in Canada to the same socioeconomic gaps faced by African-American people in the States. And in many cases, the gap is wider in Canada, right? So I guess the argument that McLean's was making was we often look down our noses at the um, race problems in the States, but then in our own backyard, the gap in living standards is often uh, worse. So all that to say, as much as people look at Winnipeg and kind of maybe shake their head, that I don't think we as a nation you know, have that luxury. We should be looking critically at ourselves as a whole. In terms of, um, you know, answering your question, like, how has the place changed? Full disclosure, I um, work with the mayor of Winnipeg as the chair of uh, the Mayor's Indigenous Advisory Circle. So this is a group of, I guess, local and a few national and international uh, voices from the Indigenous community who are trying to give him advice on how to proceed. And on the one-year anniversary of the McLean's article, you did see some of the policies that we've been working with the mayor and his staff on um, get announced. So one, that 2016 be a year of reconciliation for Winnipeg, but uh, two, that there be mandatory training for all City of Winnipeg staffers on Indigenous cultural awareness and on intercultural competency. There's actually a site of a former residential school in Winnipeg, very close to one of our busiest shopping centers, Polo Park. It's uh, the former Assiniboia Residential School, so that that site be commemorated. And, uh, you know, a few other um, policy uh, initiatives to try and make the city government more inclusive. So to me, that is a sign that our city is changing, that there has been a real response. I believe that the way that you respond to the more overt, you know, name-calling for forms of racism is through education. It is through giving people a chance to challenge their stereotypes with knowledge. It is by fostering communication so that people begin to empathize and humanize people from different backgrounds. And then hopefully those conversations, that those educational initiatives help to lay the groundwork for what I would say are perhaps the more 
challenging forms of racism to deal with, which were also, you know, mentioned in that McLean's piece, but like on the more systemic side, you know, as we've sort of discussed earlier, child welfare, health, education, things like that. Writing in McLean's very recently, Scott Gilmore, speaking to the recent tragic shootings in the Lost Saskatchewan, <laughs> said the following, if we really want to end the violence and deprivation that plagues Canada's remote Aboriginal communities, we need to help them leave these communities forever. That piece is so wrought with logical fallacies and uh, inaccuracies that I'm not even sure how best to respond to it. Like most rational people sort of looked at that and are like, huh? You know, in the, in, the, <laughs> in the same year or I guess within the same year, same 12 months, as the uh, TRC said that removing Indigenous kids from their communities was cultural genocide, that you're going to recommend a massive relocation program for Indigenous people in this country. So that's a little strange. And to me, the biggest mistake that that piece has as one of its uh, base assumptions is that the mass shooting is somehow unique to a northern Indigenous community. That's nonsense. The idea of a school shooting or a mass shooting, that is clearly an import from the mainstream southern society. That is an ideation that the shooter probably picked up from San Bernardino or from Columbine or from Ecole Polytechnique. So for us to somehow condemn northern communities or indigenous communities because of an idea that was probably learned from the south seems kind of strange to me. When we're thinking through how to respond to the tragedy in Lalash, like I think it really is gut check time for our country, right? And so what I've kind of repeated a few times is, do you see this as a northern tragedy, an indigenous tragedy, or do you see this as a Canadian tragedy? Because you're kidding yourself and you're trapped in a different era of thinking if you see it as the former rather than the latter. You should recognize that these are Canadians that we've lost. Our whole country is worse off for having lost those two students and for having lost the uh, young uh, educator and for having lost the teacher who was at the beginning of his career. Like our whole society is worse off. And until we bridge that empathy gap, we're going to have an incomplete understanding of the situation. And as a result, our responses will be left uh, lacking. And really, I think the TRC report does give us some direction on how we ought to respond. And basically it is that the era of imposing solutions from the outside should be over. That really, when we're trying to strategize for a response to a community in crisis, we should be talking to the people in, in the community and carrying out a community needs assessment and having that drive our response. Because, well, one, anything else is sort of an assumption of our superiority as outsiders. And uh, the reality is that every community has bright people who have ideas and know what their communities need. Like more often, the challenge isn't that they're out of ideas, it's that they don't have the resources or they don't have the capacity to be able to implement those things. So rather than coming in and claiming that we know best, why don't we talk with people there and just figure out what can we do as allies, as fellow Canadians, and uh, try and, uh, you know, resource and, you know, build capacity and, you know, help them strategize around those things. So, you know, when I look at Lalash, I guess, you know, it is a tragedy and it's terrible. But the response to it from outside the community is also an indication of where our broader society is at. But I guess, the, the, you know, the thing that's maybe a little reassuring is that I think the compassionate voices and the voices of empathy seem to be the more prevailing voices. We got to ask you about the biggest issue politically in the last couple of years in Manitoba and one that's been, quite frankly, rocking 
the NDP internally. And that's the issue of the provincial sales tax hike in 2013. The provincial mm-hmm. sales tax went from 7 to 8%. A lot of people inside the Manitoba NDP felt conflicted about this. Some folks have left. And you're getting into this at a time when this is a huge political issue for the election in April. So go ahead, make your case to voters in Manitoba why that tax increase was justified and that Greg Selinger, the current premier and NDPer, should remain in office after making that decision. I know Greg on a personal level and he's always treated me with respect and, uh, you know, the respect flows both ways. So on a personal level, I think that he's a good guy. This NDP government hasn't always gotten things right. I don't like the way that the PST increase was rolled out. I think it should have been more open and, and transparent. But I, I do think that the premier would say the same thing. How was the PST increase rolled out? Well, basically that uh, it just kind of surprised people, right? And then all of a sudden the, the PST went up. So I think that uh, a more transparent process, I think, is always a good idea in government. And so as I've been talking to people in Fort Rouge, you know, trying to win support for uh, my nomination and uh, hopefully candidacy, I haven't really heard people say that they're mad at the fact that there's a, a provincial sales tax increase, more that they were blindsided by it. But, you know, as I'm going around Winnipeg this past summer and I see all the construction, you know, it's a little frustrating at times to be stuck in traffic. But if you've ever driven down Winnipeg streets or alleys and you see the condition of our roads and our infrastructure, then you probably do appreciate that a lot of this new government revenue is being put to work to improve the quality of our infrastructure. But also, if you look at the state of the economy, even though Canada as a whole is facing economic headwinds, and certainly those pressures are being felt in Manitoba, that Manitoba is you know, doing somewhat better than some of the other provinces in terms of job creation, in terms of the unemployment rate. And so I think that that is also made possible by the infrastructure spending, uh, which is basically stimulus spending that the provincial government is, uh, is undertaking. Wab Canoe, social justice warrior, Canadian polymath extraordinaire, and likely NDP <laughs> candidate. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right, miigwech. Thank you. That's the program for today. Please help us keep the conversation going by hitting us up on social media. Find us on Twitter or Facebook by searching Canada Land Commons. Our producer this week is the always amazing Kevin Sexton. And of course, the music of Canada Land is by Nathan Burley. To visit the website, go to canadalandshow.com where you can also check out our newsletter, Not Sorry. Yo, I want to promote the newsletter. Why do you always get to you promote the newsletter? You cannot promo the newsletter because Vicky Machama is awesome and I'm awesome, so therefore I'm the one that's got to promo the newsletter. Whatever. To get in touch with us, email desmond at canadalandshow.com or andre at canadalandshow.com. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, support us. Visit patreon.com slash Canada Land. Now Canada Land Shortcuts will be out on Thursday and the next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up next Tuesday. Until then, peace. I saw someone on Twitter say, yeah, so you're going to move Indigenous people to like... uh, super like uh economically well off and violence free toronto <laughs> right <laughs>
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. 